Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with Amanda Lang another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. Today, we'll aim to cover two big topics. First, a recent Statistics Canada release that showed Canada's labor productivity has fallen for a fourth consecutive quarter and is now back to 2017 levels. We'll discuss what it means for Canadians and what policymakers ought to be doing about it. Second, the Bank of Canada's recent interest rate hike and whether the bank's 2% inflation target will withstand the current bet with inflation or lead to calls for policymakers to raise it. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us. We have a lot to cover. We do indeed. Let's start with the productivity issue. It's striking that we're back to 2017 levels. In fact, University of Calgary economist Trevor Toome wrote at the Hub this week that if productivity growth in Canada had kept pace with the U.S. over the past five years, we'd be producing over 8% more per hour work than we are. It amounts to something like $5,500 per person in lost output. What's your initial reactions to his findings? I mean, it's a really great piece and I encourage people to read it because um, in typical fashion for Trevor, it's really backed up with solid data and and research. The problem, of course, and my first reaction to the story and stories like it um, is this is not a new story for Canada, right? We know this is a decades old problem of low and declining productivity and the periods where we've seen reversals have been the anomalies. Um, And the, the frustration with that, Sean, of course, is when you have a problem that persists in the face of uh, time and lots of effort uh, and lots of attention, which I, you, we could say this is that kind of problem, then you start to say, what are we missing about the problem, right? Because we the, the typical ways to attack it don't seem to be particularly useful. And I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but when I began to think about it, I began to think, and Trevor raises some of the, I would call them the usual suspects of suggestions of what you can do. Um, the bottom line is we need Canadian businesses investing more than they do. Uh, we need uh, maybe longer term thinking about, you know, when those investments pay off and how. But I've, I've got to say that's not a new story. And we've seen tons of government policy trying to encourage it and it doesn't seem to work. So then I, I actually started turning my I have more questions than answers, if you will. Um, I mean, what I don't know what you think about that. Why don't we why don't Canadian businesses do a better job of investing in themselves? Yeah, that's a fundamental question, isn't it? Before I attempt to answer it, though, let me just unpack some of the numbers in, in Trevor's piece because they're they're really striking. Because what he does, which is a bit different than some of the analysis we've seen, is compare Canadian provinces with U.S. states on a GDP per capita basis. And the numbers aren't flattering. Only Alberta exceeds the U.S. average of $76,000. Ontario's GDP per capita is similar to Alabama's. And Quebec and Manitoba actually lag West Virginia. <laughs> One of the things that strikes me about these numbers, I, I take the point that the story about slow or, or lagging productivity isn't new, but 
it reflects, it seems to me, a, a certain level of complacency that this analysis, which is drawing on Statistics Canada data, which came out a couple of weeks ago, isn't producing more of a reaction in Canada. You know, you'd think that it would be dominating our, our policy and political discussion that we our living standards are falling relative to the United States. And yet, besides the hub, I haven't seen a lot of places kind of digging into this issue. Do you think to an extent, Amanda, policymakers have kind of, as you say, thrown their hands up after various attempts to sort of get at the, the root of these issues? Well, I, so I would say a couple of things about that. I, I don't think policymakers, I don't think it's fair to say anybody's thrown up their hands in the sense that this is a recurring theme, right? We hear it from government after government. Any smart person who understands that low productivity means your wealth is declining, your collective wealth is declining, treats it with urgency. Um, I would say a couple of things. And one is, uh, we, I believe there may be a cultural, systemic, structural basis to this uh, that is rooted in things that we genuinely prize. So universal healthcare, universal education, the fact that we have safety nets here that mean, theoretically at least, and we would be a whole other topic to say, are they working? But theoretically at least, and I think in practical terms for the most part, you, you don't go bankrupt when you break your arm in this country is the old cliche. It That matters. It means people are potentially, culturally, less hungry, less nervous, less anxious, um, and therefore work less hard. Like, like just, just don't have the same kind of cultural drive that you might get in places where if you do break your arm, you can go bankrupt. So that would be one thing I would say, is it possible that, that we're measuring the wrong things, that in aggregate, uh, we're doing okay because we don't need the level of per capita GDP or spend purchasing power, which would be what, it, what matters because we don't need to purchase some of this stuff. Yeah. I, so I, that's a question. So again, I have more questions than answers here. That would be one question. Um, I guess the other the other thing that you would point to is we definitely do have policies aimed at trying to solve this problem, um, but we haven't got to the ones that work. And that's, I'll tell you the thought that popped into my head, and this is a bit subversive, so bear with me. But when something doesn't change, and I, I thought of the, it was because in the context of the housing market. So the housing, we call the housing market in crisis. Very smart guy who's written this book, Ricardo Tranjan, uh, the tenant class. Uh, he makes the point, it's not in crisis. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. You can't fault a market for working properly if you've designed it that way, um, which you can argue the housing market's doing, right? We've designed it for scarcity and asset value, and that's what it's doing. Uh, because there are winners and losers in that, and the winners are the ones entrenched uh, in the policymaking. So then I, I actually, this is the subversive thought. Are there winners in our low productivity? Are there it, are there people who benefit from this status quo? And is that the reason why we actually can't move the dial? Um, and, and, and I can't think of any potential candidates except the current CEO owner who, who thinks short term, who doesn't, you know, because it's a dollar invested today that's not profit. And uh, it, 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 you know, to make a capital investment in your equipment and your future is lost today. Is that it? Is it short? I don't know. I, so that's my subversive thought. Somebody's winning from the low productivity equation or it wouldn't keep happening. Yeah. Oh, wow. A ton of insight there, Amanda. Let me put two trade-offs that I think are at the root of these types of conversations and, and sometimes a risk being neglected. The first trade-off is these numbers are directionally correct, but they may not be precise. Canadians outperform Americans up to something like the 60th or 70th percentile when it comes to income. So we're less rich than Americans, and that's reflected in our, our lower GDP per capita. 
But up the income distribution, a lot of Canadians are richer than their American peers. And so we have a less dynamic, wealthy economy, but we have a, a more stable, egalitarian one. You know, how, how, do you, how do you make a judgment about which society is preferable? And, and uh, maybe the bigger question is, how pronounced are those trade-offs? I, I think you could probably point to other countries around the world who may be getting that balance better than, than either the U.S. or Canada. That is to say, they are more dynamic, wealthier than, say, Canada, um, but less uh, unequal or inegalitarian than the U.S., and maybe that's where we ought to be looking. The second trade-off is, I think, we've effectively decided um, that we are going to have larger, better capitalized firms in Canada, in part because of our preference for stability, in part because of the country's unique economic geography. But the trade-off of that, of course, is we have less competition and less dynamism in, say, telecommunications or or banking. And again, I wonder if we're getting that trade-off precisely right. Could we have um, you know, broadly similar levels of stability and, and capitalization, um, but with more competition than we currently do? Because as you say, I think fundamentally what we're talking about here is we aren't putting the kind of competitive pressure on Canadian businesses to produce that, induce that kind of innovation and investment and, and efficiency. And that comes with some costs. It, it may come with some benefits, but I think what these numbers show is we probably need to focus a bit more on the costs and consequences of those choices that we're making. I think that's, there's real deep insight in that. And I think you're very, I think you're very polite uh, when you talk about kind of the, what we would call our protectionist or oligopolistic uh, industries. Um, and we often, of course, I do think there's kind of misplaced smugness about the stability of our banks or because there is not really any market difference between our banks and our telecom companies. And there isn't really any reason why our telecom companies continue to be protected the way they are. Um, I'm of the view that I've been of this view for far longer than has made sense financially, but that they are big banks are in jeopardy. And that's because when all that protects you from mass disruption is a regulatory barrier, that doesn't seem like a very uh, a very safe position, right? You're one government away from your, your the, the fintechs taking over and uh, us all being able to bank however and whenever we want. Uh, however, I, I'm with you that what I think we've done in this country is we have I think we do have a culture of, I hate to say good enough is good enough, but the data does point that way. But I don't think we should be embarrassed or uh, downhearted about that. I mean, so we, you mentioned kind of the countries that outperform. The Scandinavian countries, of course, are always the ones we hold up because they're similar in the sense that they have social safety nets. They do better on a lot of these metrics, right, in terms of innovation and output. Uh, Finland, as you probably saw, ranking happiest again. Well, the thing that always cracks me up about Finland is, it turns out that the, the Finns will tell you it's not so much that they run around, you know, full of joie de vivre. It's that their expectations are low. Uh, so they, they're, they actually are able to meet their, uh, their, you know, their thresholds for happiness because the threshold is low, um, which we could aspire to. We could do that here. Uh, just, and I think that that's a little bit of where you get in Canada is, you know, you want to, you want enough. You want to be comfortable and safe and, you know, make your children's lives a little bit better. That might be the galvanizing thing, actually, Sean. Our kids' lives are not going to be better. We already see this. This has been true for a while. Maybe that galvanizes us uh, because that is 
that is where kind of a sense of urgency will come in for most people. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. I wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping, six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. One issue that we've previously discussed, Amanda, that's relevant here is immigration policy. I've been struck that we're seeing more and more voices make the case that higher levels of immigration in the name of higher GDP confuses what ought to be our main policymaking goal. It's not just that the pie is larger in an overall sense, um, but that we're each getting larger slices. Uh, how much do you think this debate between GDP as the goal versus GDP per capita as the goal matters for understanding economic policymaking in Canada? I think hugely. And I think you and I, in, you know, in our conversations, we agree that the, the place you get to is historically immigration has been both. Um, it, it, it grew the pie. Um, and and then there was more for all. Uh, the the thing we're doing now is because of the scale, partly, and because of where we are in the just the arc of immigration globally, it's a, it may be a different scenario. We don't know if it's different or not, but we worry it might be different. And by the time we know it's different, it's too late because we now have you know two or three million new Canadians among us, and we go, oh, it's not the same as it was in the '60s. Um, what, and by the way, I'm, we're doing this this week on my show. Uh, this the rate at which immigrants are leaving, especially young immigrants. Right, po- young immigrants polled, thirty percent of them say they're going to leave within two to three years. Why? Well, because life ain't that good here. They can't get jobs in their credentialed fields. They can't get housing that they can afford. They can't get a family doctor. They come here and they're like, "What is happening, Canada?" Uh, so I don't think we should. It's not a shoe in. And by the way, the folks that will self select leave. They're the ones we want. They're the ones who have options and can go somewhere else. Um, and so I think it's a it is an, it's an interesting question of how we get to higher higher wealth collectively. And I hope that we can actually assimilate them properly. And by that I mean give them housing, give them health, all the stuff that we need to be doing. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll move on to our second topic. But I, I think this underlying question of not merely boosting the denominator and, and in so doing raising GDP, but actually getting at GDP per capita, that is raising living standards so that people, as you say, Amanda, feel like their children are going to have better lives than them is a subject that we'll no doubt come back to in these biweekly conversations, because I think it has fundamental, not just economic, but political and social consequences. And so it's something worth keeping an eye on. But but I want to put something I heard to you this, this weekend. Uh, I was speaking to Theora Gidas, uh, the former Bloomberg business journalists, and he observed that the current bout with inflation and rising interest rates is the first real test of the inflation targeting regime established in the 1990s in Canada and elsewhere. And he he wondered if the regime will hold up 
or face pressure uh, for politicians to intervene in some way, uh, including raising the 2% target. Uh, what's your reaction to that observation? I mean, I it's funny because I've been in a, in a probably much less informed way, been kind of noodling on this problem. And, it, and partly that's because it's just sort of logical when you think about some of the macro trends in the world. There, there are inflationary, like structurally inflationary things happening. Um, the climate change transition, all of the things we're doing to our economies to try to adapt here are expensive and they're more expensive than what we've been doing. So kind of built in inflation, at least for some period of time. Um, and the demographics plays a role in it. I mean, there's just there's all kinds of things that are happening that do sort of add new pressure. And I've been wondering whether we shouldn't say, hey, 4% fine. 4% is where we're going to land. And then you go, well, what's, a, what's the point of a target? The point of a target is just anchoring so that people don't panic, uh, right, and pull their, their consumption forward and demand, you know, wild pay increases. So if we agree on a number, it doesn't really matter what the number is. It could probably be 10%. Well, that's probably heretical. But you know what I mean? It's It just has to be a number that we all agree on that stays relatively stable year after year. Um, I don't think there's a magic in two. And, and now the flip side of that, Sean, will be every time monetary policy isn't working the way people think they should, they come up with new theories, you know, exhibit A being modern monetary theory, as in we don't understand this. Let's put a name to it. Um, and so you, I get, I, I agree that caution should be brought to this subject, but I don't know. It, it does make sense to me that like people like you are starting to ask, what is, what's the point of that firm a target, and do we need to be this dogmatic about it? And is there, have we already gone too far? You can argue that the central banks have already gone too far in pursuit of two percent. Yeah, well, we're we're seeing some of those arguments uh, manifest themselves. There are there are voices who are essentially calling on the bank to live with a little more inflation if it means avoiding. A, a recession. Tiff Macklin has resisted those demands. In preparation for our conversation, Amanda, I went back and read an interview he did with the Toronto Star in November. And what's interesting is he observes that he doesn't think an unemployment rate of 5.2% is sustainable. Uh, I, I would note for listeners and viewers, that just happens to be our current unemployment rate. So what do you think about uh, Macklem's seeming commitment to the 2% target? And do you envision a world in which uh, one of the major political parties might come out in favor of, of raising it? Yeah, I mean, there I would, so I'd be the first in line to be cautious about this becoming politicized because, of course, governments, especially governments with deficits, have other motives for liking inflation and they're not ones I'm comfortable with. Um, but do I, I, I mean, I, what I, here's what I know. Uh, from the way outside our central bank is that it's full of very smart people and it's full of smart people who um, aren't overly dogmatic, uh, you know, about kind of data and what it looks like and whether they should adjust. And there's a lot of good thinking going on. So I would be beyond shocked if somewhere inside our, our the Bank of Canada, people weren't already having these conversations and trying to put some uh, trying to put some structure, right, some some research and thought around what that looks like. But of course, as we know, the central banker can never say that. There's no way Tiff Macklin could come out and say, maybe four is okay. He has to stay, until the day he changes his mind officially, he has to stay true to two. Um, I actually think he believes in two or he wouldn't have done this most recent rate increase. Um, I think history may show this most recent eight rate increase. Well, I actually don't, I'm so, I don't know what you think. I'm of such mixed mind. Um, here's what I think. <laughs> I think they're targeting household spending. I think the household spending data in the last GDP report is what got them riled up. We're not listening. We're still out there spending like it's all going to go on forever. And they're, they're here to say, stop it. 
I don't think the housing market can be something they target. Because going back to kind of these structural issues we have and a problem nobody seems to want to solve, we have a supply problem. And as long as we have a supply supply problem and increased immigration, we're going to have, you know, inflationary, if you will, pricing in, in homes as well. So he can, they can't possibly want to get a housing correction underway. That doesn't make any sense to me. It, so it's just our spending. I don't know. I mean, I I'm, I know I'm saying two things, which is I think they're probably talking about it and they're also refusing to say it out loud. What are you hearing in the business community, Amanda? Is it still generally hawkish on getting inflation under control or are these interest rate hikes creating some doves? I don't. It's interesting. Like, I think the business community is very focused on the um, the practical issues that cause inflationary pressure for them. So supply chain issues, um, anything that that actually they're seeing as and I, I, I definitely not very many business leaders outside the financial services world kind of think about the direct impact of monetary policy on their inputs. Uh, and so much of their input price pressure has been non-monetary policy related, except for the many, many years of way too loose monetary policy that you know, I just don't think there's a, a super clear connection for many. Um, what we can agree is that their inputs are still too high. Um, and after, and so this is actually where it gets really interesting, right? After a year, two years, they adjust. They've, they're starting to adjust. And that's where you can kind of say, well, maybe now that we've sort of, we've leveled up on some wages, we've figured out how to source our lumber, you know, we figured out how to make those markets come to some kind of neutral balance. Maybe it's okay. Maybe you know what I mean. Maybe we can do this, um, and maybe that's why the stock market continues to just merrily roll along. Maybe a good way to wrap up is to try to connect the dots between the two stories that we've been talking about. My main apprehension with rethinking the inflation target, although accepting that two percent is mostly arbitrary, it's more than one and less than three, is that you know it seems to me. Canada's track record on central bank independence and its performance as a price-stable country with a sensible monetary policy is one of the few kind of competitive advantages that we have in terms of attracting foreign direct investment and competing for product mandates and and so on, all, all which are ultimately crucial in trying to boost that poor productivity record that we talked about earlier. And so it seems to me if we were to go to, to go down this route, we'd have to be careful that we don't harm those perceptions because removing that calling card for Canada, I'm, af- I'm afraid, risks not leaving us with very much in a kind of increasingly competitive world when it comes to capital and people and, and so on. We still have all the fresh water. Don't forget that. <laughs> That's true. They'll, cu- they'll come for the water one day. <laughs> so I do I do hope that the extent to which those conversations are, are taking place at the bank and in the Department of Finance, and I completely agree that it would be irresponsible at least not to be thinking of the trade-offs. There's another subject we've talked a lot about today that, as you say, cautiousness ought to be the kind of guiding principle, but it ought not to be the grounding principle for these conversations. We've even delved into subversive ideas, which is which is a lot of fun. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. As always, I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Great to talk, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. 
I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.